You know, Julie, I think the one thing you can say about the financial services industry is the, the only thing constant is change. And these days it seems all the more relevant. And, you know, one of our more, one of our more recent guests that we had on the podcast was Michael Kitsis. He's a professional. I know I've worked with for my 30 plus year career. He's just one of those trusted voices in the industry. Julie, believe it or not, I first met Michael Kitsis probably 25 years ago when he and I were both asked to jointly address congressional staffers in Capitol Hill about different aspects of financial planning and retirement savings. And all these many years, uh, we've just shared a great relationship. I'm always interested in what he has to say either on his website, on his blog, or even when I run into him in person. And John, I've always wanted to meet him. Uh, I've read his uh, work, his blog, listened to his podcast for many years, and I've always been enamored with his very straightforward, tactical, honest approach to our industry. I think oftentimes he takes very complex themes and subjects and really boils them down into just a great framework. So I feel very fortunate to have been able to speak with him today. Hi, I'm John. And I'm Julie. We're the hosts of the Hartford Fund's Human-Centric Investing Podcast. Every other week, we're talking with inspiring thought leaders to hear their best ideas for how you can transform your relationships with your clients. Let's go. Our guest today is Michael Kitsis. Many of you are familiar with Michael. He's a well-known name in the industry. Michael has a host of financial designations, including his MF. MSFS, his CFP, CLU, a whole bunch of them, uh, just well-regarded in the financial services industry. Michael is the chief financial planning nerd at Kitsis.com, where he's dedicated to advancing knowledge in financial planning and helping to make financial advisors better and more successful. In addition, he's the head of planning strategy at Buckingham Wealth Partners, the co-founder of XY Planning Network, Advice Pay, New Planner Recruiting, FP Pathfinder, and FA Bean Counters. The, he's the former practitioner editor of the Journal of Financial Planning, the host of Financial Advisor Success Podcast, and the publisher of the popular financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View. In 2010, Michael is recognized with one of the FPA's Heart of Financial Planning Awards for his dedication and work in advancing our profession. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, John. It's great to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. So, Michael, you know, Julie and I uh, were talking about all of the changes, and we were just, before we began recording, we were talking to you just about how long it's been since we've seen one another. And I guess my first question, Michael, I know you deal with many, many different financial planners and financial practices. Has what we've experienced through COVID and more recent stresses, be they market volatility, inflation, geopolitical events, do you think, Michael, that this is having impact on the core relationship between a financial uh, advisor and their client? Or is it just changing the way that relationship happens, occurs, or is communicated? How, how does Michael Kitsis kind of put everything we've been experiencing into some kind of framework of understanding? So, so by and large, I don't, I don't think what's happened fundamentally changes the nature of the advisor client relationship and what we do. I mean, I, you know, the, 
the stressful stuff when it comes, like I feel like it's one of those things like history never repeats, but it always rhymes. So I like, I remember going through financial crisis with clients. I remember going through 2000 tech crash with clients. I, I started right before the, the tech crash in nine 11. And like, I mean, they're all different. Like the conversations are different. The things we're anxious about are different. Like stuff happens and it's all hands on deck. And we're talking clients through their fears and anxieties and trying to get them through to the other side. Like, Yes, the pandemic was different conversations than the financial crisis, which was different conversations than tech crash. But this phenomenon of like, we need to be more engaged with clients and helping them through difficult times to me was was not really that fundamentally different. I think the piece that did change was I couldn't just say like, come on into my office and let's chat next Tuesday because we were all in we were all in shutdown mode. And so this shift to saying all these meetings need to happen either more virtually or entirely virtually, I think was a shift in change. And for you, know, some of us that had not done much or any online meetings with clients, we had only been face-to-face. It was a pretty big shift to get used to virtual. And I think some of us are still adapting to it a little bit. But when I look at it overall, I mean, there are a couple of things to me that come out with what change as we got forced into this more virtual client meeting environment. Uh, one was just kind of had to retrain some skills and sort of some rapport building. Just how do we, how do we connect people and engage when it's virtual and on camera and like, what's the right setup and how do I, how do I stay focused and what am I sort of watching for? Cause the body language is just a little bit different when you only get this like square and it's not the person in front of you. Uh, but there were other things I think that came from being forced into a virtual environment that were actually positive. It's, it's things like. In the past, it might have been, "Hey, it sounds like you got a lot of stuff going on. Let's uh, let's get together. You know, would next Tuesday or Thursday work for you based on your schedule? Because it takes a little time to like get out of your work or home and drive to my office. Now it's like, well, hey, could we just talk like today at four fifteen? Like just hop right onto a call. And so one of the shifts I find is, well, so meetings are often happening faster now because you can just literally schedule it faster. There's not as much logistics when we're not in person. Meetings tend to be shorter, I find by and large in, in, in online meetings and not because we're trying to make them short, but just I'm as guilty of this as anyone. You know, like if you're going to come to my meeting, no, like come to my office, no one wants to come to my office for a, a 20 minute meeting. Like just the, the drive time relative to meeting time is not a good ratio, especially DC metropolitan area. So our traffic's horrible. So no one's driving my office for a 20-minute meeting. It's got to be like an hour meeting, which means I have to fill the time to be an hour, even if it wasn't otherwise going to be an hour. I don't have to do that stuff in a virtual meeting. Like if we hop in and it takes 20 minutes to have the conversation, we're done 20 minutes. Like no one minds like, hey, you just go back to your gardening earlier or whatever it was my retired client was doing. So I find like meetings can get scheduled faster. They tend to be shorter, not in a way that degrades the meeting, but just... We talk about all the things we need to talk about, the time that we need to talk about them, and then we can move on with our days. The fact that meetings get scheduled faster and shorter means I can actually schedule more meetings with clients. And one of the shifts that I'm actually seeing, and we're starting to see this pop up in some of the data we do in tracking advisors on, on Kitsis.com, is that a lot of advisors are actually meeting with their clients more now than they did before the pandemic. S- smaller bites, like more shorter meetings. So not necessarily more time because we're all constrained the same hours in the day, month, and year, but more meetings, which is more client touches, which is more client interaction, which in many ways actually bolsters the client relationship. 
And yes, sometimes we still come together in person as we reopen and we're able to do it. But video and virtual meetings are supplementing. And, and as I view it, ultimately leading to higher touch, better relationships with clients in kind of this virtual and occasional in-person mixed setting. Michael, that's fascinating insight. And I think John and I have been having these same conversations over the past few months. And what is interesting to us as we think about 2022 as compared to the last couple of years is we now enter this element of choice, right? People can choose, do I want to be in person? Do I want to have a hybrid environment, whether it's the client choosing or the financial professional choosing how and when to engage in person versus virtually? As financial professionals think about their service model for, for this year, especially because I do think it will be just a very difficult year as we start to put the pieces back together, what is your yeah, guidance still transitioning on the value? Back to what normal world <laughs> looks like again. It looks normal. Exactly. Anymore. Right. We're on this glide path to kind of figure out what does that look like. And so I think 2022, like I said, will be a very interesting year. Is there value or what is the value from your perspective on in-person meetings and how might a financial professional look at sort of putting those pieces back together, you know, brick by brick as we, as we glide through 2022? So at a high level, when I think about what, like why in-person meetings or where do in-person meetings still come up? I mean, I, I, I think I probably threw the view this in three domains. So first, just there's some subset of clients, just they like personal they like in person. They don't like all the technology things. We often put that in an age demographic, but it's actually not even specific to age. Just some of us, like we like to sit across from others. We don't like the camera thing. And so there will always be some segment of clients who are just going to say, I, I want every meeting to be personal in person. And if you don't do that, I'm going to find me another advisor, preferably one within no more than a couple of miles of my house or place of work. And I'm going to go see them in person. So some segment of consumers, not huge, but not zero, just they will always want in person, they will go for it as much as possible. For most of the rest, we have found though, like some portion of virtual, some fairly heavy sometimes portion of virtual works entirely fine. And so I think about what, where does in-person still come up outside of virtual? To me, it really comes down to two primary domains. Either there's just, there's a weighty issue that deserves a little bit more personal in-person time, right? You know, I, you're going through a major life event transit, like you just got divorced, your spouse just died, like you actually pulled the retirement uh, cord after 30 years and your life's in complete change and flux because of the, the, the dynamic. And just, there's some weighty conversations that need to be had. Why don't you come in? Like, let's sit down in person. I, in part, that's because the conversation just may merit a little bit more of an in-person feel sometimes because the conversation's so weighty it's going to be long and like i can do 20 minute virtual but like an hour and a half virtual meeting gets hard like just it gets tiring looking at the screen that long an hour and a half in-person meeting because there's a bunch of stuff going on like we'll spend time together we'll take a break we'll 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 grab some water and snacks like you know we got some stuff to work through we're going to have some physical space and some space to do it and that kind of longer heavy meetings format, I find still works very well in person. So heavy issues, I think will continue to pull us in. And what I, I think I'll just call kind of the, the, the relationship building meetings. I mean, there are times when we do meetings with clients, like I just want to build and cement the relationship. And yes, I can do that with some shorter high frequency chit chat because we're doing video check-ins more frequently. But at some point, just, you know, I mean, human beings across most cultures 
have ways in which they come together, breaking bread together as a time of social connection and bonding, kind of we're, we're herd animals, I think it's part of just how we're wired. And so that idea of periodically, I still want to come together in person for our clients, for an in-person meeting so that we can break bread and spend time together, maybe not talking about the business as much, but just connecting as human beings. That like that just doesn't work the same way in a in a virtual environment. And and and, and I I've even seen that for some advisors that have gone so far as to run what are essentially entirely virtual practices. Everything's virtual, but you know, every now and then, like I'm in my client's area, they're in my area. We sit down. It might be the first time I got to sit down in person in two years, but then it feels so rewarding and positive to take this entirely virtual relationship. Like finally, it's so good to get to connect with you in person. So I, overall, like I, I think of in-person sticking around in, in three ways. There's just the clients for whom it's a flat-out communication style preference. They're not going anywhere. There's the the weighty conversations, deep conversations and longer conversations where it's just hard to do that virtually. And there's the the pure relationship builder meetings. And and kind of the caveat, though, for a, particularly the second and third, like that's not every meeting, like not every meeting is a heavyweighty meeting. Not every meeting is a big relationship meeting. Sometimes just we're, we're doing the business of the business, interact with clients. And so to me, that helps cement why I think we're seeing and we'll continue to see so much of this hybrid. I do some meetings video and some meetings in person. And I think the biggest thing for a lot of us is just being mindful. Like, does this really need to be an in-person meeting? Because usually if we do that, it's an hour. The time expands to fill the meeting that's been allotted. And if you're not careful with that, like you can actually choke your practice by being able to interact with your clients less because you're doing all these long meetings you didn't really need to do. And so the opportunity of virtual to me is shorter meetings, more meetings, higher touch at the end of the day. And that's what makes it a balancing point of, well, we'll still do in person when we really need to, like the weighty meetings, the relationship building and the client preferences are still out there. So Michael, I have a question for you relating to the content really of our, of the meetings that we have with our clients. I think as you mentioned uh, just a few moments ago, we're always going to have to have the volatility, financial uncertainty type conversations. They just always rear their ugly head every so many years. But, you know, a question I have for you is when we think about the great resignation, as it's so been called, uh, I know you're familiar with the work we've done with Joe Coughlin in the MITH lab. And yeah. I was speaking to Dr. Coughlin the other day, and he said, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, we saw a lot of older workers leave the workforce because they said, I, I just can't do this, right? I'm most yeah. susceptible to the virus. I'm within a couple of years of retirement, you know, I'm out. But actually what he told me was, we may actually be facing a greater resignation now when people are saying not, I can't do this. They're saying, I don't want to do this. I guess from your standpoint, you know, job changers are, are it, it's kind of a phenomenon that's always been out there, but do you see, uh, financial practitioners moving forward, having to deal with more of the great resignation ramifications, if not just straight retirement of retiring, starting a new business. What does that mean for me for a savings and spending and budgeting and all that kind of stuff? Do you think we'll see that impact further on down the line in our industry? Uh, you know, I, yes and no. I, you know, most of us historically worked with either well retirees so like moot point i i i you know i peace out it a long time ago or uh, people transitioning into retirement in which case like i'm working with you to get to the point where i don't need to work we're there or we're almost there and so aside from like 
maybe I thought I was going to retire in, in 2023, but it turned out I retired in 2021 because life and pandemic happened. Like we were already there. We were already doing those conversations. I don't know if they're dramatically different. There's always been a lot of life circumstances that make a client retire a little bit earlier or differently than the original plan when we first met with them years ago. So I feel like great resignation in that context is not all that materially different. The part to me that I think it it will show up more in our financial planning realm is, is frankly, I guess, well, to, to use a lot of the the media jargon that's out there these days. Like I, I think it's less about the great resignation dynamic and more about the, what essentially is the fire movement, the financial independence retire early movement. And to mm -hmm. me, it's not necessarily the retire early part. I, you know, in the fire movement, I'm much more into the FI part than the RE part, but this phenomenon of thinking about financial independence and what you do when you get to the point where work can be financially optional for you. And I mean, one of the covers, one of the questions I've always loved to, uh, to talk to clients about or talk to prospects about, even when they start talking about retirement is to say like, if, if the money you made didn't matter, what kind of work would you want to do? And Sometimes people say like, no, I just don't want to do any work. I want to, you know, be, be on the beach, Adirondack chairs, lighthouse, all that great stuff. Uh, a lot, but a lot of people have ideas. Like if I just say, if I just took the financial constraint away from work, it doesn't matter what you were. I mean, you might earn some money, but like you might on, or you might earn very little. It doesn't matter. It's literally all gravy money. What would you do with your time to find meaning and purpose? And a lot of people don't say beach retirements golf sit around do not like yes i would like to play more golf but not actually five days a week for the next 30 years some point it gets a little bit boring with the same foursome going out on the same couple of courses over and over again the weightings change like you know my work golf ratio might change but zero work all golf doesn't necessarily end up being the outcome and so when you start bringing that in just i find all sorts of conversations i mean i i I had a client who spent uh, years ago who spent 30 years as an engineer and her hobby was uh, she kind of had a little bit of an artistic flair on the side. She liked to make window treatments like that was her hobby thing on the side that she had had for years and years. And so eventually after 30 years, like she retired from being an engineer and she opened a business to make window treatments. She's like to do it like. She did it. Her friends thought she was wonderful at it. Some of them would say like, you should do that for me. I would like, I would pay for what you do. And so she did it. She, I don't think she ever made more than $10,000 a year. It was not big career. This was not like, you know, an entrepreneurial endeavor. And it turned out she was one of like the, the silver entrepreneurs that made a bajillion dollar business. Like she made what's essentially most of us would call like a side hustle. It was purely optional. She completely enjoyed it. She loved doing it because of what she enjoyed doing already. She took the money and used it to take extra vacations through her 60s. And just like, it was all splurge money for her, which just amped it up further. She did the things she liked to made extra, extra money to like it more. But that conversation wasn't even on the table for her, right? Like we're changed. You work and work and accumulate, accumulate. And then you got to the point where you stop working and life is different in retired realm. So to me, like a lot of what the great resignation is stirring up is, you don't have to just accept this paradigm where you're a slave to a particular job and company for your whole career until you're not, and then you're you're done and work is over. This is much more of a spectrum of 
what you do, when you do it, how many hours you do it, what you earn. You don't always have to be at your max earning years right until you go to zero. There are glide paths and part-time work and optional work and entrepreneurship that doesn't need to make as much money. And just once you put all those conversations on the table, they're very different and much richer conversations. I feel like that, that can come from a great resignation end. Right? Like, do you want to stop doing the work that you're doing, but maybe not stop altogether? What else could we be doing? Sometimes it comes from the financial independence ends. Like, you're pretty much getting to the point where work is optional, but you could still do stuff and it just gives you extra money to have fun with. Like, what would you want to do with your time if you did, didn't matter how much money you made from it? But you could if you wanted to. And, and, and those are the conversations that I, I see cropping up. So I kind of see this connection of financial independence and great resignation. It, it links the same phenomenon, which is I want to be a little bit more flexible on this spectrum from all work to, to zero work, because there's actually a lot in between those lines that a lot of us want to spend more time in. Michael, I think that's such a powerful and frankly, such a positive conversation to be having, especially in a world right now where uh, there are so many things going on, right? So much volatility, so many changes happening. At, at times, it's hard to even keep up. Do you find when you're talking with advisors and their clients that, you know, in times especially where some lots of some things are cropping up, that people want to do something? And um, how do advisors help clients not necessarily do the wrong things, whether it's with their portfolio or make a rash decision on either retiring or not retiring? You know, are there are there other great questions or uh, concepts that you're finding that advisors can engage their clients with right now that sort of help them stay focused on the important things, focused on their own goals? but aren't necessarily doing them harm in the long run because they just feel that human nature to I, I, let me fix something right now while I feel like my world is out of control. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, it's hard to me only because like clients come to this from a couple of different angles and perspectives, depending on what's going on. Uh, you know, one piece of it, I think very much is just the pure control dynamic. Like for most of us humans, it does not feel good to be out of control particularly with things like our life savings, right? So there's that, don't just stand there, do something. We feel as advisors, right? Like, you know, the I mean, the best thing from the industry perspective, usually when someone is freaking out is stay the course and do nothing. And when you're actually a person who's freaking out about the environment, the absolute worst thing you never, ever, 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 ever want to hear is do nothing. Like, no, I want to do something. Like, give me, give me something to do. I need something to do. I can't just stay here and hang out. So, you know, I, I try to actually read from those conversations and uh, even in the context of the industry to say, you know, instead of having the don't do anything conversation, have the what would be constructive to do. Let's do something. Now, I'm not the something I'm going to suggest is not let's sell all your stocks and go to cash. That's probably not the ideal thing. But what can we do? Like, I, you know what I really like to do at this point? I see an opportunity for us to rebalance. Like, I actually want to do something. It's going to be a little bit different than what you were expecting me to say, because you thought I was going to say, let's sell the cash, but let's actually do something. This is a great opportunity to do something, but here's what I would actually suggest we do. Or let's do something. I know, I know like markets are down right now, but this is actually an opportunity to harvest some losses. We can generate some tax savings around this. So obviously, ideally, I would generate no tax savings for you because things just wouldn't go down. But Given that they have, this is something we can do that actually helps generate some additional cash flow savings for you, and it helps to mitigate the impact of the, the downturn that's currently happened. 
and, and likewise, sometimes this even comes back to clients of like, what else, what else can we be doing? I mean, do you, do you want to take extra swing time at work? Do you want to ramp up something else to try to increase savings? Do you want to change some of your spending? Like, I know it's not ideal to have to cut your spending, but if you want something you can control, like I can't control what the markets are doing. I can't control how much we're taking out of your portfolio or how much we're putting into the portfolio to save or reduce spending to help mitigate the impact further. Maybe there's something that we can do there. Uh, but rather than just trying to reflect back do nothing, do nothing, do nothing, stay the course, which all like, that's how I was trained early on as well. And I struggled with that conversation. I think particularly in 2008, 2009, because just people did not want to stand still to come up with the, not to say to clients, we're going to do nothing, but to say to clients, here are some things we think are constructive to do at this point and put constructive options in front of them. And that was probably the biggest mindset shift for me from kind of like the, the first 10 plus years of my career to the past 10 years is getting away from the idea of let's do nothing and stay the course and getting into the framework of you're right, we should do something. Now, that doesn't mean anything. Here are some things I think would be constructive for us to do. Let's talk about some of these. And again, it's not rocket science stuff, right? It's rebalancing and and you know let's take a fresh look at some of those funds or holdings that we've got and really due diligence to make sure they're still the right fit maybe it's tax loss harvesting maybe it's savings and spending changes I means it's not not inventing anything dramatically new here but it was a mindset shift for me to get away from hey we should really do nothing here the right thing to do is stay the course and instead say you know i i understand it can be really can feel really scary when all this stuff is going on. I mean, frankly, as, as an advisor overseeing clients' portfolios and feel our responsibility, I find it really scary too. And I know it really feels like we should do something. And, and actually, I want to talk about what we're going to do in our meeting today. But there are some good things we can do and some things that are not ideal to do. And so I am going to try to focus us on the things we can do that I think are most constructive to still move us forward towards the goals that you're trying to achieve. So let's talk about some of the things that we can do. And that 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 gets received very differently from clients than like, I'm freaking out, I want to do something. You're like, no, no, do nothing. Like, I want to I want to do something. So lean into that human nature that they want to do something, but give them something constructive to do. So, Michael, I'm going to switch gears on you a little bit. We just have been talking about our clients and their retirements. Uh, I want to switch gears to talk about the financial professional themselves. I think, boy, over my 30 plus year career. I don't remember a time where I've heard so much about acquisition, succession planning, exiting the business. Uh, and I know you talk with a lot of advisors on these topics. When it comes to the topic of an advisor who's thinking about, uh, they're not 100% committed yet to, to selling out of their business, but they are starting to think about a succession plan. Are there a couple of things that you see come up over and over again that you tell financial professionals here are a couple of things you really need to think about as you, you know, consider what the future looks like for your practice. So here, here's the biggest thing to me when we get into this succession planning conversation. You know, we we talk about succession planning as essentially like either what happens to your business when you're not there serving your clients anymore, or alternatively, like what happens to your business if suddenly you can't serve your clients anymore, right? Some, sometimes we get there voluntarily and sometimes life happens. And, and we kind of mash all those together into what's usually some grand version of you need a succession plan. So if something comes from you, Joey or Jenny can step in for you instead. 
and you just from the individual advisor end, like, you know, getting Joey and, or Jenny and getting them in that place, like, it's a lot. I mean, we often talk about session plans, like, hey, I got a great idea. Maybe seven to 10 years from now, when you're getting, when you're winding down, uh, you might want to have a Joey or Jenny there. So you should start now and spend the next seven years grooming them. They may or may not even stick and it may or may not work out. And if you count the salary, it'll cost you about 750,000 to a million dollars, but Hey, this will probably work out. And then the way to me, like we look around and go like, huh, I can't figure out why not a lot of advisors want to build succession plans. Like <laughs> I, that doesn't even sound appealing to me as a business owner. Uh, especially since that a lot of people say, well, you're supposed to do this in your, in your fifties because you may retire in your sixties. I'm like, I like what I do as an advisor. I like, you know, if you look, uh, I mean, we see this over and over again every time we do research. Like, the single greatest predictor of an advisor's income is the years that they have been doing it with clients, which which means there's almost like just a perfect continuous curve. No matter how old you are, the older you are, the more you tend to earn. And like, it doesn't even stop in your 60s. It keeps going in your 70s for the advisors who keep going because just. We build bigger networks, bigger firms, more compounding, tend to attract more affluent people because we have more brand and reputation and credibility in the community. Like just the darn growth train never stops. You just get to the point where it's more inbound, less outbound, easier to manage the clients because you've had them for a long time. So basically you make more money spending less time doing things that's really psychologically gratifying as well. Otherwise known as you're pretty much only going to get me away from this by you know wheeling me out horizontally like why would i leave why would i leave I, I don't even make as much money by selling as i do by staying for like two or three more years and then i'll still own it two or three years from now so you know for a long time i've even bought into this idea that we're going to see a succession wave or at least it's not coming anytime soon because advisors don't necessarily leave because they're eligible for social security you know we leave because we literally can't meet with the clients anymore and that that tends to come later and later and later thanks to medical advances so here's, so like the reason why all that matters, here's how I think about it. First of all, I think you have to separate out what I would call true succession planning, which is the like, I'm going to bring in Joey or Jenny and train them and groom them to take over my clients so that there's continuity entirely within the firm. I will have a succession plan and continuity planning, which is if something happens to me, are my clients taken care of, which is super important, but can involve different strategies from exit planning, which is how am I going to harvest the value of the asset that I created if and when I decide to retire? Because at some point I will get there by health means of some or for some version or another. And so when you think about these across the dimension of there's, there's true succession planning, there's continuity planning, there's exit planning. It's important because we approach those very differently. A succession plan is one way to tackle all three. I mean, if you have a full-on succession plan, it's working and executing, it covers the succession, the continuity, and the exit because they can buy you out. But when you start separating those out, what you find is there's other ways to handle this. Uh, you know, as John, as you noted, like there's so much mergers and acquisitions right now. I mean, if your biggest problem is I just want to make sure someone will write me a check for my practice, like. You are not going to have that problem. I mean, I hate to say, like, <laughs> you could have done basically no preparation at any point for the past 40 years of your career. Someone's going to write you a really nice check for your practice. Now, you might get a mm -hmm. nicer check if you spent more time preparing it and creating some transitions and systems and infrastructure. Like, 
you know, th that stuff still impacts the valuation. But there was a point 10 or 15 years ago where if you didn't groom your successor, there was literally no one to buy it. Like if you died, mm -hmm. the value would just vanish and dissipate. That's really not true anymore. There are buyers that pretty much mm -hmm. all the way along the spectrum. You can improve your valuation by taking certain steps to make it more prepared for sale and more saleable. But you don't need a succession plan to get pretty much all the money out of the value of your practice. That just happens to be one pathway. Likewise, when you want to figure out continuity, like, yes, having a successor in is one way to do it. But there are a growing number of firms out there that will help you with your continuity plan by saying, if something happens to you, I will step in and buy your firm. Now, we used to do that historically as advisors with like the crosstown agreement. You know, John, if something happens to you, I'll take your client. If something happens to me, you take mine. But the truth was neither of us actually wanted that to happen because if something happened to you, I already got a full client base. My full client base was your full client base. I am not actually ready to handle. But because there are so many larger firms that have scaled now to go out in the marketplace and say like, hey, I want someone who can take over my 50 or 75 or 100 or 200 clients if something happens to me. And a firm comes in and says like, we have 10,000 clients and, and 152 advisors. We got this. Like, cool. Then you can be my backstop. Uh, I mean, even, even at our firm in Buckingham, like we sign these agreements with a lot of firms to say, like, we're not here to buy you. You can do this for another 10, 20, 30 years. Like if something happens to you, we will execute what essentially at that point is a buy sell plan on death or disability. And we'll make sure your clients have continuity. And we'll make sure that you get some dollars or your spouse gets some dollars. Like, you don't have to leave now or anytime soon. And there's no cost to that. Like, I don't have to hire Joey or Jenny for a salary for seven to 10 years. I just have someone who's willing to sign the deal when we sign, the, when when something happens. And so when you I think, think about that spectrum- I think it's interesting, Michael, like, because exit. also, if, if I hire Joey and Jenny, and then I decide when I get within a year of the date I'm supposed to step out, that I'm not ready to yet, it can blow that practice apart, right? So well, along lines of what well, you were absolutely. saying. Absolutely. One, one of the phenomena I've watched for a long time is that the process of getting your succession plan ready to exit is one of the biggest drivers to cause advisors to not want to exit. Because what <laughs> happens is when you finally get like Joey and Jenny up to speed, you have to create some additional infrastructure, some new systems, some transferability of what happens. Other people can handle tasks that used to fall on your shoulders. And basically, the business feels a lot less pressured and a lot more pleasant to be in because you actually delegated a lot of stuff that you had been mean to for a while but never got around to. And now that you're there, you don't actually feel the pressure to go out that you did before you had Joey or Jenny because then, then it was all on your shoulders. So like the whole process of getting the successor ready often becomes a thing that makes you not want to actually do the succession plan, which is why there are a lot of advisors out there that are on the seventh year of a five-year succession plan that still has five years to go. Because like, I mean, we don't do it maliciously at all, but like as we get, as we approach the goalposts and get ready, we find that we want to move the goalposts because it's actually changed our circumstances in some positive ways. That means I don't want to exit the way that I did before. So the, the key point to it, I mean, look, I like, I've, I've been involved with, next generation advisors support next generation advisors from the start. Like I found a next gen almost 20 years ago for trying to support these conversations. I love me some succession planning and more career opportunities for younger next generation advisors. Don't get me wrong. Like I hope we are all hiring as many of the Joey's and Jenny's into the industry as we possibly can. But just recognize the reality like from the founder's end, we used to view that path as the only way to solve for succession, continuity, and exit. And the reality in the marketplace today is that 
There are a lot of firms that will do the buy on your exit. There are firms that will sign the continuity for you in the first place, which at best made succession very optional as a strategy to fulfill those. And frankly, if you've got good solutions on the other two, you don't need succession plan as we traditionally frame it if you've got a clear continuity plan and a clear exit plan. Now, succession can change the valuation of those. It can get you some more dollars. There are other benefits for running the practice, including maybe you don't have to exit as soon if you do that. So there are lots of other benefits to bringing junior advisors into the business and growing and grooming them and, and using that to help leverage yourself. But to me, the big shift that's happened in the landscape is that's not the only path to get to the continuity or exit scenarios. And frankly, for a lot of firms, it's actually not even the financially best path. Like an external party who writes you a check for full market value is often better than paying Joey or Jenny for salary for five, seven, 10 years, and then doing a discounted valuation on an internal sale to them. So if you want to do that because you want the continuity, you want the culture continuity, you want to make sure the clients are served exactly the way that you serve them. And you're not sure you can find that from an external buyer. The only way you know that for sure is I'm going to hire them. I'm going to train them myself. And I know exactly how they're going to be served because I made it that way. There are a lot of reasons why we still stick with that plan. But at the end of the day, when you look at just these studies every year where the overwhelming majority of advisors don't have succession plans, despite the industry spending 10 plus years saying succession plan, succession plan, succession plan, like this is why. And, and frankly, my guess is we're going to see the number of succession plans go down in the coming years simply because the number of buyers that are willing to facilitate exit plans and continuity plans keeps going up and are picking up the valuations. So succession really has to be a conscious decision to say, this is how I want to see it end. Like I, I, I want to see the continuity. I want to see my firm live as it was with someone else. I want to see my clients served exactly the way that I want to see them served by training someone who will serve them that way. And a lot of us do have that proclivity, I think particularly in the independent channel, like we hang our own shingle because we want to see clients served a certain way. That's why we started our own firm, make sure they're served exactly that way. So I certainly don't expect succession plan to go to zero. It's a very meaningful path for a lot of advisors, but we have a lot more choices than we used to. And it really changes that dynamic when you start thinking separately about succession, continuity, and exit. Michael, it's so interesting. You know, you use the word choice. And I think, you know, my, my premise has been that the ability to potentially work remotely, uh, maybe that senior advisor can work from the desert half the year, or all the year, but again, their income yeah. continues to go up, their flexibility, all of a sudden I that might feels a really place good. in the desert, but yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> one example, yes. The desert here is our Florida, but, um, you know, if you think about the, those options and all of a sudden, do you think that that will continue to impact the, the timeline for many of these plans? And, and if so, what would you guide teams that maybe, maybe the Joey and the Jenny are on board and they're, they're looking at senior advisor who they thought had the five-year plan. And that was seven years ago. Are there any conversation starters for those teams to really begin to come back together and look at, you know, each other in the eye and say, okay, how do we devise this new plan given our new landscape yeah. and make sure that we're communicating so these things aren't festering and becoming you know, team toxic issues? So I, I think there's probably two, two key points that I would frame up around this sort of timeline and, and, and changing timeline. The first, get, like getting directly to your, to your question, 
one of the important things to recognize from the succession planning and is if you start down this path with Joey or Jenny, you have to follow the path because frankly, if, if, if you bail out on the path or you change the path, or you change the path too often, like they're just going to leave and then you're starting over, which is, which is not pleasant for anyone. Uh, but I do find a lot of advisors kind of, they, they, they put themselves in a little bit too much of a corner with how they set this up. It's like, Jenny, you're going to come to the firm and we're going to do this grand succession plan in five years. It'll all be yours and I'm gone. And then you get five years from now. You're like, I don't want to be all gone. You didn't have to make it all or none in five years. Like we, we put that on ourselves sometimes, right? The succession plan could be Jenny over the next five years. We're going to train you up to a certain level of development skills where you can become a partner here and you'll have a chance to buy in for 10% of the firm. And over the next 10 to 20 years, there'll be an opportunity for you to increase that stake over time and eventually take over the firm. But I, like, I don't have to put this whole, like, I'm going to be out in five years, and then it turns out five years from now, I don't want to be out. Like, if someone is successoring and they find out that they get to buy in faster, they usually don't complain. The issue usually is slower. So manage expectations accordingly. And, and it's very reasonable to do so. Like you will apply, find plenty of successors where if there is a 10 and 20 year path that they can just build their career and eventually buy in and own the firm and that's what they're looking for, that's valuable. So they do need to have equity opportunities along the way and equity opportunities that are meaningful. But what is meaningful for a 20 or 30 something coming into the industry is different than what's meaningful as a 50 or 60 or 70 something selling. So a small sale to you can still be a very big sale to them and actually starts to facilitate that. And you can give yourself more time. So don't, you know, it's, it is important to get to some transitions of equity and ownership sooner rather than later. And that just means like in the five, mid five to seven years, not 10 to 20, but you don't have to do all of it in five to seven years. Often that's not even feasible for the successor anyways. And if you make it more gradual, you give, you set the expectation for more gradual, you give more room for both. The other piece that I would that I would set to this and just like how to think about the conversations and the timeline is, you know, if, if you're not going to do succession, the reality is there are a lot of buyers out there to do an exit with. And some even that can come in relatively quickly to buy if something bad happens, uh, a lot that will just buy whenever it is that you're ready, ready and willing to sell. There are things you can do to lift the valuation, but like there, there, there will be buyers as long as it's not like a complete and utter train wreck. And even then someone will still pay you something. But you don't necessarily want to leave that conversation for your admin assistant or your spouse to figure out because you are dead or unconscious in a hospital because something happened and they don't even know who to call. I mean, I actually get calls to our platform of like, you know, my spouse talked about your stuff a lot. He's in the hospital. I don't know what to do. Can you like give me someone to call? Like they... They literally don't know where else to call aside from they heard me on the podcast so much that they're grasping at straws for me. So like, I'm, I'm happy to make those referrals and find them someplace good. But ideally, you should at least have that figured out. Like if you're going to wait for the exit, you need a continuity plan. The continuity plan should include like who would step in. And I mean, it can be a larger firm buyer, but like who would step in? Who is the contact? Does everyone know how to reach them? Does your spouse or admin staff know how to execute this if it actually came up so that they're not scrambling in the moment? And if you have that in place, that's essentially the backstop that says, okay, now you can wait a little bit longer for the exit because you've got the backstop if something happens. So the most important part is to me, not necessarily the succession plan or the exit plan. You'll get there when you get there. The continuity plan is the part that really, really matters because that's the one 
people plan for the least and is the most disruptive if it happens, not on your timeline. Michael, one last question before we let you go. Something totally apart from everything we've talked about. Often our listeners ask us to ask our guests, uh, what's one book that you've read lately or that you're currently reading that kind of sticks out in your mind? Anything jump into mind? Because people are always looking, and that could be industry, non-industry related, whatever it is. Anything that pops into your mind that you've been reading lately? Yeah, the the one I actually just got through is uh, Dan Sullivan and Benjamin Hardy's latest book, which is called The Gap and the Gain. All about how, particularly those of us who set some pretty high goals for ourselves, tend to always like, we look at how far we are relative to the goal. And almost by definition, like you're never there. Even if you get there, then like you set a new goal for yourself, because that's what us goal achievers do. So like you're always chasing the next goal post. And, you know, there's some good aspirational stuff about that. But you can also end up beating yourself up a lot about that. The whole framework, the gap and the gain is spend a little more time looking at how much you gained relative to where you were than always beating yourself up about where you're trying to be that you're not quite at yet. And just it's it's a really powerful, I think, book and message and framing that sometimes we need to spend a little bit more time thinking about the gain and a little bit less time beating ourselves up about the gap. So hi- highly recommend it, particularly for any any of you out there that have a little bit of a perfectionism streak like I do. Well, Michael, we can't thank you enough for being here with us today and sharing your insights on the advisor-client relationship and some of those team dynamic conversations that can be challenging but are so crucially important. And for any of our listeners that want to learn more from Michael, please visit kitses.com to sign up for the Nerd's Eye View blog or listen to his podcast, Financial Advisor Success and Kitses and Carl. Thanks again, Michael. It was a delight to be with you today. Awesome. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity so much. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Hartford Funds Human-Centric Investing Podcast. If you'd like to tune in for more episodes, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, or YouTube. And if you'd like to be a guest and share your best ideas for transforming client relationships, email us at guestbooking at hartfordfunds.com. We'd love to hear from you. Talk to you soon.